I think back to the pets that I've had over my life and I still miss them, every single one of them. I mean, even back to the time when I was a kid, every single pet had an influence on me growing up and in some way, shape or form helped make me the person that I am today. I'm Phil Hatterman, and this is the premiere episode of Season 4 of Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Today, Dr. Doug Mader, author of The Vet at Noah's Ark, Stories of Survival from an Inner-City Animal Hospital, discusses his fascinating life as a veterinarian. If you're new to Dog Words, in each episode, we explore the world of dog care and companionship. We Save Each Other is the motto of Rosie Fund, which simply means the more we do for dogs, the more they do for us, and they already do a lot. You can support Rosie Fund by making a donation on our website or Facebook page. You can also contribute by making a purchase from the store on our website, buying a t-shirt at bonfire.com, or buying our note cards featuring Rosie and Peaches and our shirts on barkyours.com. Links are in the description. We're also grateful to everyone who designates Rosie Fund as the beneficiary of their eligible purchases through Amazon Smile. Most items, like Dr. Mater's book, are eligible purchases. Your donations and purchases help fund the Rosie Life Starter Kits that make sure these senior and harder-to-adopt dogs have some of the items they'll need in their forever home. Any donation amount is greatly appreciated, but here are some popular levels. $30 provides a collar and leash for a Rosie Life Starter Kit dog, and $100 covers their entire kit. You can also support Rosie Fund by downloading, subscribing, rating, and most importantly, sharing dog words. Follow us on social media, even if you aren't looking for a dog. Watching and sharing the videos helps our channel gain exposure, bringing awareness to our cause and giving shelter dogs much-needed attention. Our free Rosie Fund YouTube channel offers great videos of Rosie, Peaches, and shelter dogs looking for their forever home. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions, especially if you have an idea for a topic or guest. Go to the podcast page at rosiefund.org to share your thoughts. Next time on Dog Words, we visit with Children's Mercy Hospital's Facility Dog Program Coordinators and Primary Handlers Melanie Weinrich and Bailey Wetzel. The mission of Rosie Fund is to provide humans with the resources and education they need to give senior and harder-to-adopt dogs a better life. We thank you for joining our mission. Joining us today from the Florida Keys is Dr. Doug Mader, author of The Vet at Noah's Ark, Stories of Survival from an Inner City Animal Hospital. Dr. Doug, welcome to Dog Words. Philip, thank you so much for the invitation. It's, it's, I'm honored and I really appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and your listeners. We've had lots of vets on Dog Words over the years, and I always like to hear the story of how did you become a vet? Does it go back to the first dog you had when you were four or something that happened in uh, medical school? What was your journey to becoming a veterinarian? It goes way back. I had originally intended to go to medical school. And then as I was growing up and I got to high school, my older sister had horses. And so I I would reluctantly go out and hang out with her at the stable, only to see that there were quite a few very cute young ladies that hung out with horses. And then I also noticed that all You think you can get attention with a puppy? Yeah. Just think what you get with a horse. The um, All of the the young ladies would just like – drool over the blacksmith that would come and shoe their horse. And I looked at the blacksmith and I go, you know what? I can do that. And so when I was 15, I took all my pennies and I moved away, went to Ferrier College, moved back and started my own blacksmithing company. And 
Sure enough, the girls thought I was pretty cool. But what was really neat was when the veterinarian would come out and take care of the sick horses, he would have me make special shoes for their feet. And so it was exciting for me to be able to make a shoe working with the veterinarian and take a horse that was headed toward the glue factory and then make it walk again. And like, wow, that was really cool. Then I realized, you know what? I can do what he does. I don't have to be a blacksmith and break my back the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. I'll be a veterinarian. So that was what got me into veterinary school. And that was the plan all along through vet school, through graduate school. And then unfortunately, a underage drunken driver was drag racing his friend and lost control and ran me over. And uh, one year and 11 surgeries later, I just didn't have the strength or confidence to work with horses anymore. So I started working more with the smaller animals. And so that's kind of how I ended up where I am today, almost four decades later. Your journey to becoming a veterinarian, that kind of common theme with all the veterinarians I've talked to is there was never a high school counselor that steered someone into no better. It's pretty much a self-selecting group. People identified something in themselves or in the world and felt that connection that made it inevitable that they had to become a veterinarian. Well, I, I tell you, I've, I've always been an avid reader. And right about the time of my metamorphosis when I was in high school and I started shoeing the horses and really starting appreciating animals, somebody gave me a copy of James Harriet's All Creatures Great and Small. So keep in mind that book came out, what, over 50 years ago. And so I read it and it was just two things. One is the man is just a phenomenal writer. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's just a wordsmith. And two, I just loved what he did. And again, you know, his practice was in the country and he did dogs and cats, but he also did horses and cows and sheep. And, and here I was every day working with the horses and their feet and working with the local large animal veterinarian. And it was like, it was fate. So no, you're right. Nobody in, in high school told me, Hey, you should be a veterinarian. It was kind of self-driven and directed via circumstance and reading on my own. Speaking of James Harriet, people of a certain age will remember the, BBC show that was on PBS, All Creatures Great and Small. I believe they have rebooted that. I have not seen any they episodes have. of it. They have. And, and I'm reluctant amazing. to watch it because the original holds such a special place in my heart. And then reading the books, that was my introduction right. to the books was seeing that first. And it's like, I've got to read these books. And there's debates anytime you make a movie out of a uh, book oh, what's better the book or the movie or the book or the series this is one of those rare examples of you can enjoy both and you don't have to read one before the other because it's not about spoilers that oh this is going to ruin the ending because each vignette every chapter every episode every story is just so touching and earnest and genuine that Watching it, reading it are both wonderful. So I encourage everyone to check that out. I don't know if it's available on DVD or streaming, but that original is something that you can share with the whole family, that it's intelligent enough that an adult is not going to say, oh, this is just saccharine, nothing, bubblegum broadcasting. But it's sweet enough that children are going to just fall in love with with the story. So you know, I, I have watched the the two new seasons on PBS, and they are available on the new the new seasons are available on streaming, and they're really well done. Well, if you will and, vouch you know, for it, I will. Yeah, I will. I, then it's encourage well worth my it. Listeners to check and check I, that out. 
I also just found out that they filmed the season three. So we have something to look forward to. All right. You've convinced me. I will check that out. Excellent. Becoming a veterinarian, obviously, is a lot of hard work. You go through medical school, and then you uh, have to sort of pivot because of the accident and not being able to work with horses the way you had in the past. So then what did you pivot to? Did you have your own small practice, or did you work at a veterinary hospital or mobile vet? What was your journey? A little bit of a different journey, because at the time I was in vet school, was the same time the country experienced the outbreak of the HIV or AIDS virus. And I was working at a uh, research facility with the team that actually discovered the simian AIDS, which is the primate version of the human AIDS. And why that's important is because they were able to use that model to help study the disease in humans. Normally, when you go to veterinary school, if you want to do advanced training, you have to do an internship and then you follow that up with the residency. Because I was on the research team that studied AIDS, the, the virologist who was an amazingly brilliant individual, and he actually has gone on and he was he did a lot of work with uh, Fauci and people like that to come up with the coronavirus vaccine. Anyway, that's getting off the topic. So I, I, I took a sidetrack and I got into a residency program at the research center working with primates and zoo animals. And so that was kind of my pivot point away from horses. And once I got that residency program, then I was board eligible to take specialty boards in several different areas. But I wanted to get board certified in dogs and cats because that's where the real science is. And the vast majority of you know pet owners don't own monkeys or giraffes. They mm-hmm. own dogs and cats. So the genesis behind the book is the year that I studied for my dog and cat specialty veterinary boards. So that's kind of where the whole change came in is, you know, I wanted to do the, the horses. I got injured. I got accepted into this residency program for exotic animals. And then from there, I went into private practice and furthered my education by getting the board certification in dogs and cats. Where did you open your practice? It was in the Los Angeles area on the coast. And the book is more than just here's a bunch of stories about dogs or cats. The vet at Noah's Ark really tells the story of the human experience and our society and culture and an intersection of so many different things. On the one hand, if there's one good story, that can be the inspiration for a book. I got to tell the story of this person or this event, but people get caught up in just the maelstrom of things happening, and it's hard to identify, well, what is the story? What is the thread? What inspired you to recognize there's a story here that I need to tell? It was the James Harriet books, because I always, I loved reading his books. I loved reading about what he did on a daily basis. Of course, his books were set in the rolling green hills of uh, England. My book is set in the inner city concrete jungle of the Los Angeles area. To me, the story was James Harriet would go out in the countryside and take care of a sick horse, and then the people would bake him a pie, an Mm -hmm. apple pie. And in where I started my practice, it was the only place my partner and I could afford. We started our days by painting the graffiti off the walls. You know, I mean, very completely different Mm -hmm. antithesis, 180 opposite of, of James Harriet. And I always figured someday, I, I've always I've always wanted to be a writer. I've always been a writer. 
I've done a lot of scientific writing. I've done a lot of magazines, newspaper articles, and I always wanted to do the James Harriet thing and write down a story about what it was like starting my career in the inner city. And as a writer, they always say you should write a minimum of one page a day. So I've always kept a journal. So I kept a journal of all of these episodes, like you said. And is there one story? No, there's not one. It, it's kind of a narrative that it's interwoven like a, the fabric of a just a, a larger puzzle, you know, each individual piece. And that's that's kind of the direction that I took it is I wanted to share my experiences like Harriet did, but from a different perspective. So instead of driving my car over some rolling hills, I'm driving my car down narrow streets covered with graffiti and passing hookers on the sidewalk. But there's still a universality to it because the Harriet novels were so appealing, but you didn't have to grow up in England. You didn't have to grow up in a rural area in the rolling hills. You could be from anywhere and recognize the universality of what he's experiencing that these yeah, you universal truths, you, yeah. yeah you, you nailed it. And you know what I think that common thread is, is the human-animal bond. And the human-animal bond is so incredibly powerful. It crosses over race, gender, wealth, whatever. There are no limits to the human. Everybody loves their pets. And living in the middle of the inner city, it was kind of interesting because where our practice was, we were right on the cusp of the very poor part of town and right on the cusp of the very wealthy part of town. In fact, the governor of California was one of my clients. And then I also had people coming in that were so poor they could barely afford shoes for the children. But the one thing that didn't change, again, it didn't matter what their social status group was, everybody loved their pets and everybody wanted to help them. And I can honestly say and proudly say that my partner and I never turned anybody away. We never said, oh, you can't afford it go somewhere else. We always worked with them and we just made it a point to try and promote that human animal bond and keep it alive as long as possible. I'm assuming you have pets and you know, they never live long enough. No. My goal has always been to try and keep that going as long as possible because it's so important to all of us. It's not something that we take for granted. There's blessings and gifts in our lives that I know we all take for granted, but it just seems like the human animal bond people recognize how precious it is. Maybe for a moment, you might forget that your dog or your cat or your horse is part of your life. But then every time you see them, every time they look you in the eye, you remember what a treasure it is to have them in your life. I agree. And I think where it hits hardest the most is the day after they're no longer in our life. Yes. And you wake up and there's that emptiness. I'm a very emotional person when it comes to pets and animals and all animals. And I think back to the pets that I've had over my life and I still miss them, every single one of them. I mean, Mm -hmm. even back to the time when I was a kid, every single pet had an influence on me growing up and in some way, shape or form helped make me the person that I am today. Whether it was the love that we had playing ball in the park or sitting, holding their paws, they were euthanized because they had terminal cancer. Mm -hmm. Every single pet that I've ever had. And Philip, I've had, (laughs) you know, the usual dogs and cats. I had horses. Uh, I currently still have turtles, snakes, frogs, birds. And I'll I'll tell you what, you know that about five years ago, you probably don't remember, but a very, very bad hurricane called Hurricane Irma came through Florida. And it destroyed my house. Everything that we owned was washed away. I mean, literally... 
we evacuated, we came back to nothing, zero. The only thing that was still there was, thank God, our hospital was still there because we had just built a new facility that was built for a Category 5 storm. So thank God it was a very large hospital, and the vast majority of my employees ended up moving in there and stayed there post-storm because it wasn't damaged. We lost everything, all of our personal belongings. We did evacuate with our pets with the exception of my fish. And I had a very large fish tank that I'd had for years and years. Some of the fish I'd had for over 10 years. And people don't think that you can have a human-animal bond with fish. But after 10 years of feeding these animals and caring for them and taking care of them, you look in and see them. They look out and see you too. Most people don't realize that. And they recognize you. And the tank was a long tank, and it stretched the wall near my front door. I'd come home from work late at night. They'd all be at the end of the tank by the front door. I'd walk past and put my keys down on the counter. They'd swim to the other end of the tank and get all excited. you know. And then I'd feed them, and I would talk to them and tell them about my day. When I evacuated for the hurricane, I took everything with me except my fish. I couldn't. How do you evacuate a 150-gallon tank? Mm -hmm. I had three backup systems on it. Unfortunately, when a Category 5 storm comes over your house with 20-foot waves and 180-mile-an-hour winds, I came back. The tank was still there. It was moved, believe it or not. It had gotten moved, but the tank was still there, and all my fish were dead. And to this day, I will never forgive myself for that. I don't know how I could have handled it any differently, but that killed me, just losing all those fish. I just I felt so bad for them. You know? It's like people go, oh, they're just fish. No, they're not. They're part of my life. Like you said, they are part of my life. Every single day, I look at those fish and they look back at me and I would talk to them and I would feed them. And whether it's a fish, a cat, a bird, a rabbit, a dog, uh, you know, that human animal bond is real. The interpersonal style of a veterinarian is going to be on a scale just as it is with all people from someone whose bedside manner is that of a fence post to the most empathetic, thoughtful, caring interactions. But what's going on inside a veterinarian, there has to be empathy there. There's just different ways people express it or cope. And I would guess there has to be some sort of compartmentalization while you have to care about every patient and their human to become so emotionally involved that it consumes you is unsustainable. For the pet owner, their interaction is just that one interaction. It's with that one veterinarian or that one vet tech. And so they're going to judge them based on whatever they're saying, whatever they're doing. Like This person doesn't care. It's like, well, they care, but they have a dog dying in the next room that is their next appointment that they know about, that they have to be able to handle that interaction as well. They can't fully give themselves to you. And I don't know if I'm making a lot of assumptions here or if that rings true to you. How does a staff in a facility like yours or any clinic or hospital make it through appointment after appointment when they're with people who are expecting, you're giving me everything you have because I want what's best for my dog that I brought in for any number of issues? You're, some more serious than others and some you're you're nailing it right on the head i mean I, I couldn't say it better you have to put on a game face and i'm not saying that to be disrespectful but every single pet owner deserves 100 percent of you when you walk in that room and i'll give you an example of a typical day first client of the day a senior citizen comes in he's 80 years old his wife passed away he's on social security 
His cat is dying of kidney failure. He and his, his wife had got the cat as a kitten 17 years ago. His wife's been gone for two years. His cat's dying. He can't afford treatment. He needs to put it to sleep because it's suffering. And it's his last link to his dying wife. And so, of course, you're not going to rush through that. You take your time. You hold his hand if you need to. You hug him. You cry with him. You put the cat to sleep. You walk out of the room. You take four steps. And what's in the next room over? I mean, four steps away. It's a young couple, and they just adopted a new puppy. And it's bouncing all around and chewing at their shoelaces. And they're so excited because they named it Fluffy. And it's the first dog that they've owned. And they want to be the best pet owners ever. Now, you've gone from euthanizing someone's longtime companion to another room where you're initiating a new relationship, but it's 180 degrees opposite. And then you finish giving the vaccines and you give them the puppy handouts and you tell them you're so excited for them and you genuinely are. You walk out and your tech hands you the next chart and it's a cat that's got a broken leg and the owner won't spend $150 to put a cast on it. He'd rather euthanize it. Okay. And so like, wait a minute, I just went to school for 28 years. I've got a specialty and I've been trained in surgery. I can fix your cat very easily. And you want me to euthanize it because it's inconvenient and costs too much because you want to go buy beer. So man, it, it's, it's a roller coaster of emotions. And that is one of the reasons why sadly the veterinary profession has an extremely high suicide rate and burnout rate. And it, it's, again, you nailed it when you brought that up. I mean, that's a huge topic. What sort of resources are there for personnel in your industry? Is it just the community of people you work with, or is there a larger program for helping people cope with this? There there are. The American Veterinary Medical Association has some really good support sites. There are some private support sites. There are, Some of the veterinary schools have hotlines that you can call, and they hook you up with trained counselors. And then, you know, I... I, I've always had a very active student and internship program at my hospital for the last several decades. And I always sit down and I talk to my young doctors and my young interns about how important it is to develop support structures now, because I can guarantee you, I can guarantee you, you are going to have a bad day. I said, it's going to be a bad day. It's not going to be your whole life. It's not going to be your career, but you're going to have a bad day and it's going to be horrible. And if you have the support structures set up in place, when you have that bad day, you have somebody you can lean on to get you through that bad day. And, you know, I got to say, veterinarians are wonderful people. They're very caring and loving, and they support each other as well as supporting the animals. And the thing is, you know, maybe you'll be lucky and you won't ever have a bad day, but the odds are you're going to. You're probably going to have more than one, but you're going to be there for your friends too. So they're going to be there for you if you need their help, and you know that you're going to be there for them if they need to call you up. I think any veterinarian, at least in my generation, knows at least one, if not more, veterinarians that have committed suicide because of the stress of the job. So you're absolutely right. It's worth noting that the exigencies for suicide are there, but as you laid out, the preparation, the support, ahead of time is so critical to prepare you for those moments that are going to stress you so that it's not seeking help when you most need it. It's having it before you get to that point um, right. to, to try to avoid getting so far into either the depression, frustration, anger, whatever is prompting you to take those steps 
go into that career, prospective veterinarians out there, with your eyes wide open. There's so much joy and gratification for what you can do as a veterinarian, but be prepared for the bad days, like you said. Yeah. Just wait for them to happen. I've heard this saying in other professions as well, and it's been modified. And it's 98% of your clients and patients are wonderful. 2% of them, not so much. And those 2% tend to give you 98% of your headaches. So what I always try and tell my young doctors and my, my interns is that you have to do the best you can to let it roll off your back. Don't take it personally because when the other 98% come in, they need 100% of you being positive. They don't need you walking in the room all depressed and down in the dumps and they need you to be positive and help them either with their new puppy or help them get through the, the struggles at dealing with their own pet's health. Like I said, and, and it's, it's sounds cliche, but it's really an emotional roller coaster. But I think the, the more you take the time to prepare and, and understand that it's going to happen. Like if you own a car at some point, you're going to get a flat tire so you have to just realize it's going to happen sometime. How will I deal with it when it happens? If you pre-plan, it's never going to be easy, but you're going to be able to get through it a lot easier than if you just pretended like it didn't exist. Yeah. The investment of having a spare tire and having changed a tire in your driveway or in the Walmart parking lot just so that you can do it in the best of situations is going to make it so much easier when you're doing it in the middle of the night in a rainstorm by the side of the interstate. And And hopefully you never have to do that. Right. Absolutely. Perfect. So that roller coaster that you describe, how much of that roller coaster is in your book, the vet at Noah's Ark? I think there's a pretty good sine wave there. I mean, fortunately, you know, it's, it's, I've been really lucky. The reviews have been all extremely positive. One person, one person wrote that, they found it very depressing because there were some really sad stories. I'm sorry, but life has ups and downs. And I believe the, the Godfather is 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> so so okay. th- that one bad review. So yeah, if it's not 100%, Citizen Kane is like 98. So, so yeah, yeah, one person who can't give you a good review, that's on them. That's not you. Yeah, I, I'm not too worried about it. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that you asked about the roller coaster in the book and it's reality. There are, there are some really great happy stories in there. There are some absolutely hilarious stories in there. And then there are some very sad stories because you know, it's a hospital and not every patient lives and you know, we do everything we can to walk on water, but sometimes you don't know we see the rocks and you fall in. Somebody asked me once, you know, how many patients have you treated in your career? Cause I've been doing this about 40 years now. I, I don't remember Philip. You know, I remember some of the really unusual spectacular cases but the ones that I will never forget are the ones I lost, the ones that I've, I, I lost sleep over. And you put so much into some of these cases in not only to the owner and, and the patient, but the whole staff does. We, you invest everything trying to help it. And sometimes you can't win. You know, we do everything we can. And those are the ones that all lose sleep over. I mean, literally we'll go nights without sleeping, thinking, what could I have done differently? Mm-hmm. And I, I try and look at every case as if, okay, if this was my mom's dog or this was my dad's cat, you know, how would I want it handled? How would I want the vet to do it? And if I don't know the answer, 
I don't let an ego get in the way. I'm happy to refer to somebody who knows more than I do. It's that's the proper thing to do. If you refer it out and they can help it, great. If you refer it out and they can't help it, then you it, you still know you've done everything you possibly can. And it, it's it can be a challenge. But no, the the book covers the whole spectrum. To be emotionally strong, emotionally balanced, emotionally prepared, I think it's necessary for people, whether they experience it in their own lives or vicariously through a book like yours, need to see those ups and downs and not just this smooth bullet train from one happy stop to the next. There's no growth. There's no learning. There's no benefit to that. Having the emotional reaction to some of the sad moments that are inevitably going to be in a book about this topic makes for a stronger person so that you can handle those moments in your own life maybe a little better, just as you in the real world were thinking about what could I have done differently. That forces us to confront, well, what would I have done in that situation? How would I have responded? Would I have had the emotional intelligence to do what needed to be done and, and you don't learn that from just a saccharine, feel-good book that has no setbacks. Well, I think one of the things, when I wrote this book, it's technically a memoir, but really it's written as a, they call it narrative nonfiction. It's a story, and it's told in the first person by me, and it's really not about me. It's about the human-animal bond and a team of incredibly gifted, talented, caring empathetic individuals living in the inner city during a pretty rough time and how the whole team did everything they could to promote that human animal bond. And I take so much pride in the wonderful team that I worked with. And I'm so thankful because I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't work with really good people and caring people. And I think that's just a big part of it. I really do. You keep mentioning the human-animal bond in the book. Is there a human-animal bond that is part of your story? Yeah. My wife and I adopted a dog from the shelter, a little black chow chow, and uh, we named it Wok, W-O-K. If those listeners that are familiar, chow chows are called the Chinese lion dog, Mm -hmm. and they literally look like a lion because they've got a very large chest and they have a very heavy mane. And they were warrior dogs. They were protected to palaces. And we adopted him. And he ended up costing us a zillion dollars because he had all sorts of birth defects in his hips. And it was surgery that I couldn't do. So I ended up befriending a board-certified surgeon who ended up fixing my dog's hips. And he actually ended up being my mentor and sponsor for studying for my specialty boards. So we became very good friends. But Walk was my best friend. My wife was an emergency room nurse. We had polar opposite schedules. She worked at night. I worked during the day. So at the end of every day, I'd go home and take my dog walk for his evening strolls to the park. And um, the readers always got to know what I was thinking and feeling because at night I would talk to my dog. I would take him to the park. He would go around and mark the bushes. And then we would sit on the bench and just kind of chat. I did most of the talking, but he was a really good listener. And he was my best friend. And uh, he's probably, I consider him the, to be the star of the book. And the readers really end up loving Walk, And he ends up playing an integral role toward the end of the book. And he probably knew he was the star, whether there was a book or not. 
He was definitely, you know, I think back in all the pets I've had in my life, and hands down, he was the smartest dog I have ever had. His personality was amazing. And I think it was just meant to be when we rescued him that, um, uh, again, I, I can only say that I probably spent more time with him than I did with my wife because she worked at nights and I worked during the days. Again, he was he was my sunrise and sunset. And he lived for quite a while. And then sadly, he ended up passing away of a brain tumor when he was 16, which is quite a, an older age for a, a big dog. Yes. Listeners to Dog Words know that last year we lost Peaches, who was a senior pit that she was over 15 years old. And you don't expect to have a dog for 15 or 16 years. You talk about the loss you feel that the next day when they're not in your life anymore, you're not expecting 15 or 16 years, but then you want one more day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sadly, they, you know, they, they age so much faster than we do and uh, they never live long enough you know, there are some exceptions to that. I had a pet tortoise that was 55 when he passed away of liver cancer. So 55 is a pretty, pretty long time to have a pet. Mm-hmm. When I lived in California, a lot of people in Southern California have pet tortoises. I mean, they're really common. Tortoises and probably I, feel the same way about us that we do dogs. The tortoises are probably thinking, you know, the humans just don't live long enough. I know. That's for sure. We had tortoises come into our practice that had been passed down from grandfather to father to son that were documented well over 100 years old. And yes, a tortoise can make a great pet and you can have a human animal bond with a tortoise just like a dog or a cat. But it does highlight the importance of including your pet in your estate planning. Yeah. You know, you bring that up, but it's funny because we were just talking about that the other day. I've I, I still have three tortoises and I'm sure they will long outlive me. And I also have a macaw, which is a big parrot type bird. And she's 33 and, you know, they'll live 70, 80 years. She will outlive me too. It's so hard to think about that, but you're absolutely right. You need to think about that because it's selfish if you were to die and leave them with no plans. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not fair to them. They'll end up going to the animal shelter and, who knows what's going to happen? Animal shelters are extremely compassionate people, but then they're tasked with trying to rehome a bird that's been bonded with one person for 40 years. So you do need to kind of plan ahead. And that you bring up a very, very important point. And, you know, I've, I've dealt with that many times where clients have come in and they've actually left endowments with our hospital saying, okay, we're going to leave an endowment so that Fluffy will be taken care of for the rest of Fluffy's life. And money will always be there. And any money left over, you can donate to a charity in the event that Flavi passes away at some point. But that's a really good point. In the description, I will link to an interview we did a while back with attorney Trish Lincoln, who talks about just these things. And I do want to emphasize one point that she made, which is you may think my son will want my dog or my kids will take care of this. Don't assume that because after someone passes, we've all seen examples of this family that we thought was very tight is now fighting over who gets the house. Or even if they're not fighting, maybe your son lives someplace that doesn't allow pets. And what's to be done, do you know they're going to do what you would wish for your, your pet? So everyone, if you have a pet, check out that interview that I will link 
in the description. You describe the location of where you worked as being that your clinic was sort of on the cusp of the wealthy part of town and the uh, poorer part of town. And so this mix of clients, not that wealth necessarily guarantees someone's going to be more prepared for pet care or make the right decisions, but it's been my experience working in the shelters that there's so many populations on the margins that have pets but have not gotten the information about pet care or what options are available for pet care. You almost have to coach up the pet owners on just how to care for their pets. Did you find that to be the case with a lot of your clients coming in? Yeah. Yeah. Education is so incredibly important. And I've always felt that an educated pet owner makes the best pet owner that enhances their relationship with their pet. And one of the things that I always try and bring up, and that's the elephant in the room, which is the cost of veterinary care, the cost of keeping your animals healthy. And a lot of people feel like, oh, I don't need to spay because it's too expensive. I don't need to vaccinate. It's too expensive. You know, these are all things that are pay me now or pay me later. It's a lot less expensive to purchase a a parvovirus vaccine than it is to let your dog get parvo and have to go through four or five days of intensive care and maybe or maybe not even come home. So the cost is a, is a huge issue. And, and one of the things that they have now that they didn't have when I started, and that is pet insurance. And it's like anything else, you know, it's like that spare tire in your car. Why spend the money on the spare tire? I don't ever plan on having a flat tire, but why spend the money on pet insurance? Because, you know, I'm never going to need it. If you're lucky, you will never need it. Mm-hmm. And it's money well invested. But the day that something bad happens, you'll be so glad that you have it because it could mean difference between, yes, I can fix Fluffy's broken leg or no, I have to sadly say goodbye to Fluffy. And then that's it. There will be no more Fluffy tomorrow. So, you know, that's that's extremely important. But there are also different levels of pet insurance. So there's entry level to, you know, for covers your basic spay, neuter, vaccines, all the way up to extremely advanced for chemotherapy, surgery, that kind of thing. What we used to call Cadillac coverage with human insurance. Yeah, exactly. One thing I do like to point out to people adopting from a shelter is when you get an older pet, sometimes the pet insurance has pre-existing conditions that are not covered. So make sure you read the policy in its entirety and understand exactly what it's covered so that you know if you need to do something supplemental. What we've had to do with our dogs is just make sure we have, because we adopt senior dogs, is make sure that we have an account set aside, that this is money that we expect to spend on ACL, cancer treatment, those things that are going to improve its quality of life so that we're making decisions based on quality of life and not what can we afford to do, because that's a horrible position to be in. My heart just goes out to anyone who is in that position where they have to choose what is the best option based on the expense. If you can take the expense out of it and focus on quality of life is is so much easier than having to live with the regret of if only I'd have spent another hundred dollars. I know. Or thousand you know, that, dollars. That is tough because that second guessing of yourself, that lives with you forever. And it, it, it can eat you up. And don't be prideful and keep that to yourself. If it's about the money, 
tell your veterinarian. It's not that the veterinarian is necessarily going to give you free care, but the veterinarian is going to know about the resources that are out there. For instance, here in Kansas City, there's a Keep Them Together program that KC Pet Project, which is the animal welfare provider for Kansas City, Missouri area, that has funds for people who need just that gap filled in and they can keep their pet. If it's an expense that if we could take care of this expense and then in a couple months you can get your pet back, that we have fosters who will take care of the medical care or the recovery and get your pet back. But if you don't tell anyone that you're making this decision based on your resources, if you just say, no, I just don't want to mess with this, and you walk out the door with your dog, well, then no one can help you. Ask for the help. There's no guarantee that it will be there, but give yourself the best chance. Your point is very valid. Most veterinarians that I know that are in private practice have a list or access to angel funds that can help. And, you know, so maybe fund A can only give you 50 bucks, but if you go to four or five different funds, you might be able to get enough money to get whatever you need done, done. And you did bring up another good point, which I want to share, and that is veterinarians are not banks. We go to vet school and spend a whole bunch of money to learn how to take care of your pets. And we all have compassion and we all want to do everything we can. We can't do it for free. But if you give us a chance, we can help you find the finances to help get through it. And again, probably not the best businessman because I've never turned anybody away in my career. I've always helped everybody I can and I've been burned many times, but I'll still come tomorrow. If you need help, I'm not going to walk away. I think veterinarians in general are good people. I repeat this frequently on, on dog words, take care of yourself first, because if you don't, then you're not there to help someone else. And the analogy I always use is the safety briefing on an airplane is When the oxygen mask drops, put on yours before you help those around you. Because otherwise, you're going to be fiddling with them, and then you're going to be out of oxygen, and then you are no good to anyone. So a veterinarian who just gives away care for free is going to go out of business, and then nobody gets the benefit of that person's knowledge and skill. So yeah, you have to stay in business. Yeah, and all of your employees need to eat as well. Yeah, there's people counting on you. Take care of yourself. I'm so excited to read the rest of the Vet and Noah's Ark uh, in its entirety. What I've gotten to enjoy so far has me wanting more, and I did not think about the James Harriet comparison, but it is apt, and it is, again, the universal stories of the human-animal bond. So I'm putting that link in the description that you can get your copy of The Vet at Noah's Ark. And then once you do, you'll want to share it so you can buy more copies to give to friends. And certainly anyone who's thinking about becoming a veterinarian would be a great uh, introduction. And I know there's probably lots of children out there who have read All Creatures Great and Small and gone through the rest of the books. And now what's next? Well, what's next is The Vet at Noah's Ark. Keep going. Here's another book in the series, more or less. It's the updated I appreciate version. that. Thank you very much. My, my goal is to do a series like James Harriet did. The second one will also be in L.A. And then the third book is going to be when I move to the Florida Keys, where I live on a small island now. So it will be uh, hopefully a very interesting set of series, just like the James Harriet tied them all together. Give us all something to look forward to. Dr. 
Doug Mater, thank you so much for not only being on Dog Words, but for what you do for the human-animal bond and just our community of, of animal lovers. Keep up the good work and keep writing. Thank you so much, Philip, and thank you again for the opportunity to share my passion with your listeners. I'm Phil Hatterman, and you've been listening to Dog Words, presented by Rosie Fund. Thank you to Dr. Doug Mater for joining us today. Use the link in the description to order your copy of The Vet at Noah's Ark, Stories of Survival from an Inner City Animal Hospital via Amazon Smile. We are grateful to everyone who chooses Rosie Fund as the beneficiary for their eligible Amazon purchases. Next time on Dog Words, we learn about Children's Mercy Hospital's Facility Dog Program from program coordinators and primary handlers Melanie Weinrich and Bailey Wetzel. A big thank you to alternative string duo The Wires, featuring cellist Sasha Groshong and violinist Laurel Morgan Parks for playing the wonderful music you've heard on today's and previous episodes of Dog Words. Supporting The Wires supports our mission. Learn more about The Wires, including their concert schedule at thewires.info, and download their music on iTunes. Check out fiddlelife.com and learn to play fiddle and cello fiddle online from Laurel and Sasha, even if you've never played before. Join Laurel and Sasha as they explore new music and delve into the inspiration behind each work as hosts of Sound Currents on 91.9 Classical KC. Click on the Sound Current links in the description for more information. Go to rosyfund.org to shop and get links to our social media. As always, please download, follow, rate, and share dog words. This helps us with sponsorships, then Rosie Fund can help more dogs. Send us your comments, questions, and suggestions via the contact form at rosyfund.org and let us know if you would like to be a sponsor or a guest of the Dog Words podcast. Thank you for listening to Dog Words, and remember, we save each other. Mm-hmm.